Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Polygreens podcast. I'm Joe Swartz from Amhydro, along with Nick Greens of the Nick Greens Grow Team. And today we're going to talk to you, uh, as we're talking about controlled environment agriculture, we're going to talk about soil. And uh, we have a lot of questions. People are always uh, asking questions as it relates to to production. Uh, you know, we get the question, what's better, uh, hydroponic uh, production, soil production? And uh, it's obviously there's, there's a lot more to it than that. And, and certainly um, there are advantages and disadvantages of both. So we're going to kind of break it down today a little bit. We're going to talk um about uh, both types of production and different applications of both and uh what we can do to maximize our production regardless of which way we we go so um nick how's everything going today out in sheboygan things, things are going great um you know and i and i want to make sure that people know that th- this is not a um a podcast about um hydroponic is better over soil I thought we would just do a podcast and just explain the differences and let people make the decision on what they want to choose. Um, I started off in soil, um, so I am actually a soil grower too, um, but I do soil indoors as well as hydroponic indoors. Um, I like the two, so I can't, you know, I'm, I'm going to lean either way depending on the situation like we always talk about. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, I'm a fourth generation farmer. I grew up here in Western Massachusetts on a farm, uh, still farm to this day. Uh, so, so I grow using controlled environment hydroponic technologies, and I use traditional what you would consider traditional field growing technologies, and and different levels of that. You know, so now talk- your grandpa, your grandpa then definitely grew in soil, then right. Oh, absolutely. Um, my grandfather uh, had a small dairy operation and grew some mixed vegetables. He grew tobacco, uh, onions. Um, then my dad and uncle were potato farmers. They grew potatoes here on the home farm and then on a lot of lente- rented land around uh, the, the county. And then, um, you know, when I took over the farm in the 80s, um, so I live in a college town, so we only had the home farm, which was 30 acres, which in you know most situations is a pretty small piece of land for, for commercial farming. And so you know the, the fact that I was limited by the size of the farm, we were in a college town, um, all the rented land that we used to rent for raising potatoes everywhere was lost to development. I mean, there's substantial development that's happened here in the last 40 years um, in Hampshire and Franklin County. So uh, I knew I couldn't rely on the potential availability of rented land. So I had to make do with what I had. And that limitation on the size of my land was one of the things that pushed me into controlled environment ag and hydroponics. And and that's actually goes to one of the, the reasons that a lot of people look at hydroponics versus soil. But as you said, it's certainly... Um, it's up to the application because at the end of the day, we're all farmers and no matter what you're growing, no matter where you're growing it, we're growing plants um, in sufficient quality and quantity that we can sell at a price point that allows us a reasonable profit. And that's it. And so which tools we use are dictated really by a whole host of factors from our location to our skill, to our available yeah, a budget for sure. Now, yeah. dude, I have a question though that just hit my mind right now. Do you remember what age you were when you first worked the farm, or did they put you on a tractor when you were like? <laughs> oh yeah, I was. Uh, I was four. I was in my first. It was in kindergarten when I was first going to school. Um, I was all excited about telling kids in my kindergarten class that we had my, my dad raised uh, sweet corn. And so he, he let me have one row of my own corn. So at five years old, you know, I was uh, taking care of a, a row of corn uh, or so I thought. And, uh, and, and certainly, you know, made me feel very connected. Um, it's amazing, you know, when you're a little kid and you're, you're interested in how plants grow and you're interested in kind of the natural process. He's like so many kids are. It was amazing to watch, you know, I helped my father plant the seeds. I watched them first sprout, you know, that first time the corn plant pops through the soil, you know, it's such an exciting time. And then watching it through the whole season and when it tassels and when the ears form. And then when we finally harvested corn, you know, my, uh, my dad picked the corn and, uh, you know, I, uh, as again, I was helping him, air quotes helping. Um, 
And uh, and we took a, a couple dozen ears home and boiled them up and, and had them for supper. And of course, I felt so grown up and accomplished. And I was a big time farmer at that point. So, um, but it really did. It was kind of one of my earliest memories, and it instilled in me that love uh, of a couple of things of, of of kind of the natural process. You know, I was you know from a very early age very aware here in Massachusetts. The seasonality, you know, wintertime, everything is dead and it's cold. And as spring comes and the, the, the snow melts and the weather becomes warm, all of a sudden, you know, animals and birds and insects are all coming alive. And then all of a sudden the plants and the, and the um, uh, you know, the natural vegetation all kind of springs to life. And then you follow that whole process through the summer and then everything dies in the fall and on and on. And on. Now, as a controlled environment ag grower, you know, some of those cycles have kind of been taken out or or minimized, but still we do have those natural cycles. And um, a lot of our conversations about things like environmental control, seed varieties, production techniques, all of those really are hinged around, you know, the needs of the plant during the different growth cycles. So, so I always have loved and always have gravitated kind of toward those natural cycles. And when you're a soil grower, you're really tied to them. So what was your uh, first time going to a tractor pull? <laughs> you remember well, that? My uncle, against my father's wishes, my uncle popped me on to a tractor. I drove a tractor. Uh, I want to say I was 11 or 12. I mean, I literally could barely reach the pedals. Um, yeah, I probably went to a tractor pull about that same time. Uh, the farm equipment. And, you know, uh, likewise, I've always been fascinated with the equipment and the tools, you know, whether we're, you know, growing, you know, on a tractor, uh, whether I'm out in the field using a cultivator or even a hand implement like a hoe or a computer or a high level greenhouse environmental management system. It's all hey, tools. The reason, reason why I asked that is I went to my first tractor pool this past weekend. Oh, so, no kidding. Yeah, I finally. Uh, yeah. Fun. <laughs> you know, I, I never knew that, that that was like a huge thing for the town, you know? Yeah. Yeah. People really, there's a lot of people that really enjoy it. And it's funny. I know so many people that, that have never been or, or hadn't been and laughed about it and thought it was the goofiest thing. We have a, a, a yearly fair um, not, not far from us. And when we were all in high school, you know, the kids used to joke about, oh, the tractor pulls. Okay. And I know a number of people that went and they, they loved it. They thought it was the coolest thing ever. So, yeah. So the equipment, um, regardless of what type of growing, uh, there's so many cool pieces of equipment out there and, uh, and then, yeah, a little fascinating stuff. So you enjoyed yourself and had a good time. Yeah, I did actually. I, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I was built for the country. I, I seriously uh, am a big believer. I was built for the country, even though I was raised in the city, uh, you know, the concrete jungle. Um, I don't miss it at all. Well, next year we'll get your craftsman riding lawnmower and you can enter that in the tractor pole. <laughs> So anyway, so we get a lot of questions uh, about soil, about soil-less growing. And so we'll break it down a little bit today. Um, first of all, when we talk about soil growing, obviously, this is our, our, our traditional long time, you know, as long as we have been farming um, commercially, um, this is how we grow in soil. So first of all, we, we want to stop and, and step back and look at soil. Now, what does soil actually provide? To plant growth, so so first and foremost, the soil provides um, a ideal germination environment. So, um, if you have a garden, let's say um, this year you've got some tomatoes growing in your garden, tomato falls on the ground, splits open, and these tomato seeds are now incorporated into the garden. Um, once in a while, uh, a few tomato seeds will will actually start to sprout. But usually, what happens is the seeds go dormant, and then next year, when you're tilling up your garden, all of a sudden in the spring, all these little tomato plants are starting to grow, and that happens to me all the time. And and the reason being is is that seeds have a genetic predisposition. So when they are incorporate in the soil when they're when they're shed from say their fruit so a tomato or a pepper or a cucumber when those seeds whether they're removed mechanically by say someone growing seed um, or just in nature where the uh, the fruit is eaten by an animal where the seeds are then deposited somewhere um, or uh, they just fall on the ground so the seeds usually go most seed types go dormant for a certain amount of time because you know nature in its infinite wisdom doesn't want the plants to try to grow again at the end of a season 
So the plants, the seeds will go dormant and they will usually somehow get incorporated into the soil. And in a lot of climates like the upper Midwest and New England and all, the, um, the winter, the freezes and thaws and the snow cover help incorporate that into the soil. And then in the spring, when the temperature is right, when the level of moisture is right, then the seeds will then germinate. And that's, that's our natural process. That's nature uh, in operation. But whether we're growing soilless, uh, in, so, in soil or soilless, the, the ideal conditions we, you know, are either provided by nature or we have to mimic them. So, so looking at that moisture level, that correct temperature level, all those parameters to make your specific variety germinate properly, our soil is doing. And, and as CEA growers, we're, we're doing that artificially, but we're still, that's a very important part. So, so of course, first and foremost, soil is providing a good um, environment and conditions for, for proper germination and early growth. So what else does the, the soil provide to the plant? Well, the, the plant, of course, um, requires physical support. So the root system of a plant penetrates into the soil and provides physical support for that plant so it doesn't tip over or blow away or whatever. Um, it also provides available, obviously available water or irrigation. So the plants derive all of their, their moisture directly from the soil. Um, and it also, the soil also provides dissolved nutrients. Now, this is a, a misnomer. So people think of hydroponics. So the plants are absorbing liquid nutrient solution. They're, they're, they're absorbing liquid nutrients, whereas in the soil, they're not. They're absorbing kind of solid minerals. That's not true. The plants can only absorb nutrient when the nutrient is dissolved in liquid. So in hydroponics, obviously we mix nutrient uh, concentrates into water, provide that nutrient solution. But in soil, the nutrients that are in the soil are dissolved into the moisture of the soil. So the plants are absorbing the exact same liquid nutrient um, in, in that condition other than, or the same as in a hydroponic uh, system. So, so whether we're growing hydroponically or in soil, these, we're, we're providing dissolved nutrients. And of course, the dissolved nutrients are provided by that soil. And lastly, the soil provides beneficial microbes. There's many different um, uh, roles that beneficial fungus and bacteria play in, in crop growth from um, the acting as antagonists to um, fungal and, and in bacterial pathogens. So, so blocking out diseases or, or limiting disease organisms um, to um, metabolizing waste products from the plant roots to helping break down those nutrients uh, in the soil so that the plants can, can use them. And of course, there's also um, a beneficial or a synergy where uh, microbial activity can actually stimulate root uh, upgrow, uh, uptake. And then also the, the micros can also uh, take um, nitrogen from the air and put it into the soil as well. Yeah, there are certain, yeah, nitrogen-fixing bacteria, um, certainly, uh, most definitely. So, so that's it. That's what the plants get from soil. So proper germination conditions, physical support, water, dissolved nutrients, and beneficial microbes. So when we look at controlled environment agriculture, now that's what we're providing. That's what we're looking at. And um, a lot of the conversations that Nick and I and, and many of our guests have had relates to providing those in the, in the best way possible. And the, the, the best way I can describe this is the people are not feeding the plants. You know how someone says, I'm feeding my plants. Well, technically that is not true. People don't feed the plants. When you feed your soil, the soil gives the food to the plants in mm -hmm. a liquid form, correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and when yeah. you're doing it hydroponically, it's the water that's providing the same nutrients without the soil. Yep. And the, and the beneficial microbes. People, again, that's another misnomer is that people think, well, um, and this is kind of the, some of the debate that we'll talk about today where people, you know, always are asking what's, what's better, uh, soil or hydroponics? Well, in soil, uh, one of the arguments is that, well, soil has um, this whole uh, microbial flora, this, the, uh, ben the soil is teeming with beneficial microbes. A properly run hydroponic system is providing exactly that as well. Um, you know, because we can't see the microbes, uh, we tend to forget about what's going on in the root zone. But and in every place you put up a system or, or you grow in soil, the, the, the 
the population of the micros are going to vary, right? The difference of micros vary. That's why you can grow wine grapes in California and you can't grow them in Arizona. Well, the yeah, absolutely. The microbes that are in soil uh, are influenced by many things and things like salinity, temperature, pH, and of course, soils are very unique region to region, place to place. Um, there are many different types of soils and compositions of soils. So, um, yeah, the, the, the type of microbes, the, the populations, the, the vigor and strength of the different microbes are all influenced by the number of those factors. Yeah, and, and not- also, what, what's the nighttime temperature compared to the daytime temperature? That also will will determine the micropopulation. Exactly. It's not like streptomyces like to live in Arizona because of the tax benefits. They're they're more they're more um, you know apt to be in soil conditions you know with certain temperatures with certain humidities uh, excuse me moisture levels or pH levels. Um, you know the the, um, the 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 type of hydroponic systems. That we have, you know, obviously there are many different types, but we always have in our nutrient solution and in our root zone, a very, very biologically active microbial life. And we want to add to that. We want to stimulate that and we want to manage that. And, and that's part of our nutritional and environmental management. So, so whereas, as you say, the, you know, certain microbial activity that's going on in soils in wine country, um, you know, we want to look at what is best for our lettuce crop in the greenhouse or our tomato crop. And so many of the both nutritional and um, root zone environment um, can, you know, can be manipulated specifically to also enhance that microbial growth. So, so certainly the the notion that hydroponics is sterile or somehow super ultra clean it is ultra clean in terms of insects in terms of um, pathogenic or harmful um, uh, pathogens but you know we have a very very active biology going on in our root systems or at least we do if we're managing them properly and that's where the crop quality and, and nutritional uh, uh, content really you know, is enhanced a lot. So, um, where where we grow, obviously, the we always think of the physical climate. You know, why are we growing most of our leafy greens out in California and Arizona? Well, the climate is favorable to that. So, when we, we look at uh, hydroponic technology or CEA, we're growing indoors where we're now manipulating that. So, we really now have to start looking at the root zone and the nutritional environment or the nutritional management, as we say. And we have to look at, at our crops. We have to look at the different uh, parameters that we're, we're um, supplying for the, for the system. But again, there are certain advantages and disadvantages to both. And Nick has actually written a, a great article. I think is it com- coming out uh, this week? It's coming out. Uh, yeah, they can go look at it now. It, it should be published by the time this, uh, this airs. Yeah, yeah. And I like the title because it, it stimulates that those questions. Hydroponics versus soil, which growing method is better? And uh, as we've talked about, and if you've ever listened to the podcast uh, in any uh, way, you, you realize that there are many different ways to grow properly and there is no one right way or wrong way. But Nick kind of breaks it down. And maybe, Nick, you want to kind of walk through a little bit. Yeah, some yeah. I mean, well, the first thing is that what I yeah. noticed when I switched from soil, you know, like I said, I started with soil. Um, I was doing soil in, in the sun, sunlight with soil. And when I switched over to hydroponics, I noticed the first thing um, that, that I had is that hydroponics required less space. Um, I was able to pack more plants inside a room than, than, than I ever did uh, with, with the hydroponics. It was just allowing me to space everything vertically and everything. And with soil was just a little bit harder to create a system to do that. So with soil, you're limited on how you can arrange the plants or manage the population. Or, or if you're growing big plants, then you got huge amounts of soil. So that that's also taking up a bunch of space when you're growing, you know, uh, plants in water, um, you're, you're, uh, your, your medium that it's sitting in can be a lot smaller than the soil is taking up. Yeah. 
The space issue also speaks to the economics. A lot of times people ask me, well, hey, can I grow hydroponic sweet corn or how about hydroponic wheat? Absolutely, you can. You can grow very high quality. The problem is that some of these crops are very land intensive. So for the amount of saleable product, let's use sweet corn, for the amount of saleable product of sweet corn, basically with a, a sweet corn plant, you get one or two ears of corn on a plant, but that plant takes up a lot of space. So you need a lot of space. And when we start talking about economics of the of the space, it'll become more clear. But basically, in a controlled environment ag situation, that space is very expensive and you can't space them closer together. So the ability to get a higher economic return uh, over soil is difficult. So that's why we look at certain crops. So the space regarding or the use of space regarding hydroponics versus soil, you know, does allow you to to utilize that space in CEA much more effectively. Yeah. So when you're doing anything indoor, whether it's greenhouse, warehouse, basement growing, kitchen growing, I just hands down uh, hydroponic winds with space for sure. Sure. So what's next? Uh, water next, saving? Um, yeah, saving on water, which is we've been knowing, and this has been preaching for quite some time now. If you take that same of corn that you're growing outdoors in the soil, and if you do bring it indoors just for fun and bring it indoors and grow it indoors, um, you are going to, waste uh, less water growing it indoors hydroponically than soil grown. Yeah, the hydroponic systems obviously allow us recirculation, um, whereas we don't in the soil. It depends on the crop. It depends on the area. It depends on the irrigation type uh, and technology. But basically, um, in field crop production, most of the water that's applied to to commercial field crops um, doesn't go directly to the plant. And also the water is not exposed to the air as well. So there's less evaporation going on in hydroponic systems because a lot of the, the, they're contained, the water is contained in PVC pipes and, and, and channels and stuff. Yeah. And and that water is not coming down in the form of rain. So it's not wetting the foliage, which again goes to potentially inhibiting uh, any type of disease pathogen. So keeping the foliage dry, um, as opposed to damaging the plants as well. Uh, you know, some hard rains when they're smaller can damage some crops as well outdoors. Yeah. Yeah. So using hydroponic systems allows us to use uh, not only our space more effectively, but also conserve our water. Yeah, that's, that is a huge thing as well. You know, especially, you know, there's, there's water shortage. I mean, I mean, throughout the world, we're just having problems with water right now and droughts and so this definitely makes sense if you're in those regions, for sure. Um, and another thing, I think the third thing uh, is no weeds. I mean, you're not you're not bringing you're not weeding your garden at all. I love it. Number three, say goodbye to weeds. Yeah, I still have scars on my knees from weeding onions as a kid. Um, that was like that was one of the things when I was looking at hydroponics. Uh, it was very attractive to me is that you're not dealing with weeds at all. I mean, once in a while, you'll get a, a mustard seed and some lettuce batch or something like that. But it's, that's not the weeds. It's just a mixture of the uh, seeds getting in with the other seeds. Yeah. Yeah. But but uh, for all my greenhouse growers out there, um, every year I'm in someone's greenhouse where there are weeds growing up in the greenhouse somewhere in the corners or against the side. <laughs> and I always yell at them. Keep your greenhouse clean, folks. You're not dealing with weeds in your crop, but, um, you know, most greenhouses, especially where the uh, floor covering meets the the side of the greenhouse or on the end walls, weeds will always find a way and they'll start popping up. Especially especially if you're like me, right? Um, When when I um, weed, when I go weed my, my outdoor garden or outside, I sometimes leave some of the weeds because they look pretty. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to take them out, but I I'm can't think that right. way. I can't think that way. I know I can't. Yeah. I actually about a month and a half ago, I visited a grower, and um, you know, small double poly house, beautiful crops in there. They were growing great, and there were some weeds along the uh, back end wall by the cooling pads. And I'm 
I'm like, what are you doing? And I walk them over and, you know, they're laughing about it, but they're like, look, it's a couple of weeds, no big deal. It doesn't hurt anything. It's not affecting my production. And I went over and there were a couple of grasses growing in there and I pulled the grasses back and the undersides of a couple of the plants were completely covered with aphids. And I said, what do you think these are? And where do you think they're going to end up going? So um, the the weeds that, that, that you might allow into your greenhouse um, can be great vectors for different uh, insects and diseases. Um, so, yeah. yeah because one out. of those weed plants can be sick and, and be a host. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a little insect and disease incubator. So um, aside from the fact that it just looks you know, lousy to have weeds growing up against your end wall, but uh, it, yeah, it can cause you a potential problem. So, so even though in hydroponics, we don't generally have weeds, you still have to watch out for them. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, you get less chances of pest and uh, you know, I mean, once in, you know, I mean, I just want everybody to understand, uh, you know, someone told me, how can I completely get rid of these flies and bugs? And I'm just like, you are never going to have zero bugs in your greenhouse. There, it just doesn't it doesn't work that way. You are going to find a couple flying in there. Uh, what what matters is that your plants are not sick so they don't become a host. Uh, a, a bug is not there to attack healthy plants. They're there to take out the weak plants. That's their job. That's what they do. But you will have uh, insect and disease issues always to look at after. Especially in- foliar, foliar uh, uh, diseases right indoors uh, is... Oh, sure. Yeah. And, and we hear that a lot, you know, especially with indoor farming, you know, it's indoors, there's no insects, no diseases. And I just slap myself in the head. Um, you know, when you do have a perfect or near perfect growing environment for plants, you're also creating a great environment for most insect and disease pathogens. And what, now, you, what you got to think about is when you're outdoors, right? Uh, well, what are what are some of the wind uh, uh, miles per hour, 20 miles per hour winds, 30 oh. miles per hour winds? You are never going to have 30 mile per hour winds inside your greenhouse. I hope not anyway. (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah, you you don't want to. But what I'm trying to get to is I think that the 30 mile per hour winds helps have less uh, foliar diseases when you grow outdoors. Well, absolutely. If you have an area with good air movement, certainly. Um, That's why in our greenhouses, well, you know, horizontal airflow fans, um, vertical fans, um, poly tubes. Um, air movement is critically important. Um, sometimes people fall into that trap, you know, on a, on a nice day when the greenhouse environment is really ideal, they feel like they don't have to move air. I don't have to, I don't have to heat the greenhouse. I don't have to cool it. So I don't need to run any fans. No, you always need to have air movement. You need to be able to, um, to disturb that microclimate around the plants, you need to be able to dry off moisture on the plants. You need to be able to stimulate transpiration by air moving across the stomates of the plant. Um, yeah, that air movement is, is important. And of course, obviously in nature, under most situations, you do have a decent amount of natural air movement. Obviously, in some regions, uh, more air, air movement than, than others, but but certainly, but I do, I do want to warn people that, you know, when you are growing indoors, greenhouses or indoor spaces, is that your pest control, your insect control needs to be as intensive as anywhere else. Now, in an enclosed environment, our greenhouses, for example, we have the physical barriers that we can put in, such as insect screening, such as a vestibule, which is a, a, a intermediate room. So you're going from outside to the vestibule, maybe putting on clean clothes and then going in the greenhouse, having a foot bath, having um, sticky traps. Those are all things that really we can do with indoor growing that we, that's very difficult, if not impossible, to do in a field. I would love to put a giant insect screen around my whole farm, but not very practical. So yeah, so they do so, that with some uh, wine, wine. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, they do now, for the birds, know. right? So the birds don't eat the grapes. I think. Yeah, you can you can put on yeah bird netting. Um, a lot of berry crops, uh, raspberries, blueberries. Um, a lot of growers up here use Reme, the uh, the spun bo- uh, bonded row covering over like their early spinach or their early salad greens. Keeps the flea beetles out. Keeps the cabbage loopers out. So yeah, so you you can outdoors use physical barriers like that, but obviously. Uh, controlled environment ag ends a lot, uh, a lot more tools, if you will, 
um, to keep things contained. And, and, and to your point, it is much more straightforward in a, a greenhouse or grow room where you can raise high quality crops, removing any weaker crops, disease crops, damaged crops. So you are creating less appeal for those insects. But certainly, you know, for example, you get aphids or thrips, you can have perfect high quality lettuce. And, and if that's what's in there to eat, those aphids and thrips will go after that lettuce. So, so a real intensive biological con insect control program is warranted regardless of where you are. But uh, obviously, when compared to outdoor production, you have many more tools at your disposal. And I know one thing that I didn't put here is um, cost, right? Like when you're running hydroponic over soil, uh, there's a cost factor, right? Um, yep. And I and I believe that um, actually you're you're saving more money doing hydroponic first off on the fertilizer, um, you know the, how you're feeding the plants. Um, you're not running big tractors outdoors, uh, you know. So I think you save on some energy, but then you lose on the lighting and then uh, the HVAC systems and stuff like that. So I think there's a, it's 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 head to, it's it's they're even off. I think. Yeah, you, you touch on an excellent point. So people tend to look at uh, comparing hydroponics to soil and they say, well, look, uh, a one acre high level greenhouse with all the systems and infrastructure, that's going to cost over a million and a half dollars. I can buy one acre of farmland for $10,000. It's a no brainer. Um, so that's unfortunately not all there is uh, to the puzzle. And and to your point, the, the tools that you need in the field, the tractors, the cultivators, the irrigation equipment, um, those are those are important factors. And in the greenhouse, obviously, the environmental management systems and the nutrient control systems and the automation. And and so the the cost to start to the infrastructure, if I was going to start a one acre vegetable farm outdoors and a one acre greenhouse farm, obviously, my upfront costs are going to be substantially more, <coughs> excuse me, in the greenhouse. But then we start looking at the operational costs. Then we start looking at the productivity. So if I can produce 40,000 heads of lettuce in my one acre field, but I can produce 1.6 million heads of lettuce in my one acre greenhouse, then the, the productivity versus the cost, that equation starts to get skewed. So as you said, there's really no right answer here. It's not no, but when you're doing, but when you're doing the outdoor, how many crops can you get turn over in a year? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So in some cases, you only have one. In some cases with leafy greens, you can get two, maybe three, depending yeah. on- what If you, you have are. an Indian summer, right? You can definitely yeah. get three. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's, a, that's a big factor. So let's talk about tomatoes real quick. So we have uh, greenhouse tomato growers. Their, their tomatoes are started in, in uh, October, November. They're in the greenhouse in January. They're harvesting by, by April. Uh, March or April, and then they're harvesting all the way through the end of the year. So they may have seven, eight, nine, ten months of harvest period. Um, whereas, you know, that, that, that's what we call the startup period or the vegetative period. So when you take a tomato plant and you plant it, whether it's in the greenhouse or in the soil, it has anywhere from, you know, eight to 20 weeks where it has to grow before it begins producing marketable fruit. And in the greenhouse, you, you go through that same period, but now you have the ability to extend your harvest season. Whereas if I'm growing tomatoes outdoors here in Massachusetts, I may be harvesting tomatoes by late July, but by mid-September, it's done. So your harvest window is also shrunk. So, so that productivity, how many pounds of tomatoes per acre or how many heads of lettuce per acre, that, that's skewed by a, a number of factors. So again, it speaks to the individuality. It speaks to the unique application. So, so for anyone listening, if you're growing outdoors or if you're growing in a greenhouse, your particular situation, um, there's a certain similarities that you, know, you maybe you're in northern Minnesota. There may be some similarities uh, to some grower in the Bahamas um, but there are many differences. So, so those are all factors, and I, I don't mean to make it sound more confusing, but there are a lot of factors. So it really is not an apples to apples comparison. Well, then the, and the last thing that uh, uh, is the, the coolest part about this is when you're doing uh, hydroponic over soil, you are in control. Uh, when you are doing soil outdoors, hmm. 
Mother Nature's Nature is in control. control. Yes, yes, she's in control one hundred percent. Yeah. And uh, and when you're indoors, you are in control. You you make a mistake. You forget the water. You forget to turn a fan on. You forget. You know, there's floods. There's I mean, there's so many problems that we've occurred that that can happen. But if you're on top of that, I I would say that um, hydroponic is looking better than soil. But once again, we go back to it depends on what you're growing. If you're growing sweet corn or feed or feed corn, then you want to do that in soil outdoors. Yeah, 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 for sure. And um, to your point that when you're comparing soil grown to CEA hydroponic grown, um, it is the opportunity for that much higher level of uh, control is there. So you're able to to control your nutrients better. You'll be able to control your physical environment better. But also to your point is it is much less forgiving. Um, you, you, my, my field of, of lettuce, if for some reason I leave for two days, um, when I come back, for the most part, that lettuce should still be there and should be fine. Uh, I leave that greenhouse unattended for two days and very bad things happen. Yeah, your temperature of your your water is eighty five degrees. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right now, if a pump goes down, you know people are in the greenhouse all the time. There's alarms in place. The pump goes down, it can be re- repaired or replaced very very quickly without any loss of of production. Um, yeah, as long as you have flow meters uh, calculating the flow on the pumps, that's what I usually love to install uh, is flow meters, just because then I know daily on how how that pump is flowing because sometimes you have to clean the filter out daily or every other day and the way i can know when to clean out a filter is by looking at the flow rate you know great point and and also too centrifugal pumps which are pretty much the the standard type of pump in almost all hydroponic systems um, they have certain performance characteristics so if you have a pump that's producing let's say it's pumping 80 gallons a minute when that pumps, and the pumps are very reliable, don't get me wrong, but occasionally you do have a pump that will fail, um, whether it's just through time or abuse or you know a, a defect. But that pump may start failing weeks before it actually shuts down. And sometimes you don't notice that the pump is going down. Um, I always tell growers to put their hand on their pump. If the pump feels exceptionally hot, then it's working too hard and it's a good time to replace it. Um, Your flow meter, that's an excellent way because if you start noticing your flow starts dropping dramatically, you still hear the pump running, it's still running. So it sounds like it's okay, but that's the time to replace it. It's not the time to replace it when it's 90 degrees and the pump shuts off and you've been, you know, down the road at the store for a few hours and you don't know that the pump is gone. So, so it's a very good indicator of what's going on with your And pumps. a lot of times it's not even the pump going down. It could be just the buildup of salts or minerals all over the magnetics. So the magnets are not really conducting well. Um, I noticed that. So when I see my flow drop, I'll clean out my pump, yep. soak it in bleach water, or clean it out to get some of the clunk out and then put it back in and then see my flow rate jump right back up. Absolutely. Yeah. We should have talked about that when we talked about our, our issue and we talked about maintenance. Um, well, we could do a whole one about pumps and stuff like that, too. For sure. Yeah. Circulation yeah. Of water. Those are all really great points and, and really great things to think about. So when you're looking at your particular application, there is no one right way. And that's one of the things Nick as a consultant and I as a consultant and M Hydro does as a company. We help you look at your own individual situation. So certainly we encourage you to reach out. Um, Nick, I got a couple questions if we have a, a minute. Uh, Let's do that. Uh, for us. Um, yeah, I'll give you the first one. Um, how much light do I need to grow my microgreens? And do I need different types of light for different kinds of crops? Um, actually, no, you don't need different lights for different crops. Uh, what it comes down to, it comes down to DLI. Um, I usually try to hit about a 10 or 11 DLI. And the way you calculate that DLI is you take your micromole uh, and you times that by the hours that you have it on. Or is it times or is it divided? It's one of those. But the formula, yeah, you can look at the formula up online and then and then you just come out your DLI. And that's kind of like I'm, I try to hit around a 10 or 11 at the minimum. Um, and right now I'm growing in two different uh, uh, lightings. I got one that's a blue lights targeting mainly the blue spectrum. 
And then I got another light that I just bought from um, from uh, Home Depot when they're just regular shop lights. Uh, and I got like two of them. So I got one bar on one row and two bars on another row. And they're both looking the same. I mean, they, they both look the same. They're both hitting the same DLI. You know, um, the only thing that I see different is the color. Uh, with the blue, you get a little bit more darker, a darker like bluish green. And with the white lighting, you're getting like a more uh, greenish green. So, yeah. And we, uh, we have coming up in an upcoming episode, we're going to dig into environmental um, parameters much more deeply. We're going to talk about things that sometimes people don't talk about. DLI, daily light integer, um, vapor pressure deficit, um, higher level nutritional management, all those things that really impact our growth. We're going to talk about, um, you know, at a much higher level. But the, the DLI that uh, Nick was referring to is daily light integer. And basically, in a, in, a, in a nutshell, in English, it's in a 24-hour period, the amount of light usable PAR light or photosynthetically active radiation that's coming into the plant. And so we measure that in the certain value. So 10, obviously that level um, would be more than sufficient for microgreens. If we're growing tomatoes, 10 isn't enough to do much of anything. No. So, no. so different crops have different needs. Um, so we'll be discussing that in greater detail. But when Nick is talking about a certain DLI level, he's talking about the light that's required for those specific crops. So, so again, when you're talking to Nick about what types of lights to use, you know, what crops you're growing and the growing methods that you uh, are using, those are questions that Nick's going to want to ask you and he's going to make recommendations. Yeah, and, if you, and if you don't have a light meter, uh, the best tool to have is your eyes. If you're watching those plants grow from the beginning stages, especially microgreens or baby greens, you're going through a lot of beginning stages with microgreens. So you kind of become an expert on, on is my plant getting too much light? And the best way to, 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 to tell is your plant will stretch. It will start getting really, really long stem. And, and you'll see that the foliar or the, or the true leaf is not even growing well. It's just stem is just growing and growing. And that will determine that you don't have enough light or the light is not close enough. So you can adjust those two, add another bar light, add a stronger light, or adjust it closer until you start seeing your plant have the right amount of stretch. Yeah, We always talk to growers and when they're looking at especially indoor vertical farms, they say, well, this looks great because we see all this, this green growth. They say, well, stop and take a closer look. We're looking at an indoor farm with lettuce. Look at the heads of lettuce. Are those actually, um, you know, marketable, market competitive heads? And usually they look close and they say, oh, wow, that, that's just a thin little stringy. You know, when you look at the individual heads of lettuce, they're thin and small. And it's specifically related to the light issues that Nick was talking about. So, so your crop performance and as, you, as you're a grower, um, it becomes much more intuitive. So you, you'll be able to see even without a, a light meter, you'll be able to see how that light is impacting your crops. And Nick was, was correct in, in saying when you're starting to and, see. And if you mess up the first time, awesome. Now you know what it looks like to stretch a plant out. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Um, uh, ironically, this kind of speaks to some of the things we talked about. One of the things we were talking about today, um, I've got an NFT system. Do I run the pumps continuously or do I turn them on and off? Excellent question. Yes, and the answer is. is yes. And what I mean by that is that there are many different ways to grow. And we well, do if have- If the pump is on completely, that is a true NFT system, right? Yeah, but I mean, it can be with an intermittent system as well. So the, would that be considered almost like an ebb and flow NFT if it's coming on uh, and off? Te well, te technically, yes, because NFT, obviously, is nutrient film technique. Correct. So but the water we, always has to be flowing and it to be an NFT true. Correct. So, so why would we not run the pumps all the time? Well, there's a few reasons. So we do have many growers um, gr running the pumps 24-7, and that's perfectly acceptable, um, providing that the nutrient solution is well oxygenated and the nutrition and pH are, are in the right levels. Your plants are basically getting a continuous nonstop supply um, of all those critical uh, components and doing very, very well. One of the downsides is obviously the, the electrical cost is going to be higher. The wear and tear in a pump is going to be higher. Um, some growers opt to having a cycle timer. So maybe the NFT system is on for 10 minutes and it's off for 10 or 15 minutes. People get scared with NFT. They, they, they will tend to say, 
oh, if an NFT, if your pump goes down, you know, in five minutes, your whole crop will be dead. And that's absolutely not true. So, so what happens is now, if you're running a 24-hour continuous cycle, and then suddenly you, you stop for 15 or 20 minutes at a time, the plants are going to suffer for a little bit until they can grow additional roots. Or um, in, uh, in uh, deep water culture uh, systems, there's a system called the dry hydroponic system, where some of the roots are completely um, immersed in a nutrient solution. And the, the growing cube is held a little bit above the nutrient and it grows what we call air roots. So these are, are short roots, very uh, heavily branched. They're specifically to help take in actual oxygen or atmospheric oxygen. So you're kind of getting the best of both worlds. You're getting nutrient and water absorption, but you're also getting really good aeration and cycling the NFT systems works in very much the same way. So personally, myself, um, all of our NFT systems, and we've done this for over 30 years now, is that um, the system shuts down about an hour after sunset. So basically the plants physiologically now have shut down. The system shuts off. Now there is sufficient solution and sufficient moisture in the nutrient, uh, in the nutrient uh, channel that over the course of the night, the, the plants are not transpiring like they are during the day. They're not absorbing water nutrients like they do. And so that, having that pumped down, you're just not running the water. You're not contributing maybe more moisture to the environment. Um, and so then the system comes back on about an hour before sunrise. So the plants are already getting fresh oxygen and nutrients um, prior to any growth activity or photosynthetic activity. And then um, with our systems, we have them on a cycle timer. So they run about four minutes and then they're off for about 15 minutes and then they run for four and they and they cycle. Now, what we've seen, we've gotten much better pump life and much lower energy use, but we've also gotten a little bit more of a robust root system. Now, some growers are critical and say, well, you don't want the plant putting any as much energy into root growth. But what we found is that that when we cycle our system for leaf crops, for lettuce, for basil, is that basically we get a little bit more of a robust root system with more of those root hairs and, and those air roots, if you will, where they're actually, and so we get better oxygenation, we get lower incidence uh, of disease, we have a more stout root system, so we don't have long stringy roots that when you're packaging lettuce, you need to clip off, um, and it, it produces, in my opinion, a better product. Um, so how often you cycle them? or if you make the decision to cycle it or not, is completely dependent on your location, your environment, your systems, your personal preference. So again, like everything, there's no really one right way, but that is certainly an option for many growers. It's one that we've used a lot. And so uh, it just fit into our discussion today. Uh, one more, I've got one more for Nick. Um, when I'm growing microgreens, should I treat my microgreen seed with bleach or hydrogen peroxide before growing? And if and if not, I why? would say don't don't treat no seeds unless you're having problems. If you don't have problems when you're growing microgreens, there's no reason to 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 to, uh, to sterilize the seeds just because uh, the fact the the companies that produce the seeds and manufacture them uh, and process them, I guess. Uh, they have to sterilize them. They have to meet standards. Uh, the seed companies run so many tests and data tests because they're required by the USDA um, to run tests on that. So they're always checking for pathogens and checking for diseases and checking for things that are in the seeds. And they have to have a certain amount of level of that in the seeds. So I would say it's a waste of time. But if, I mean, it doesn't hurt to put a little bit of, uh, you know, um, some kind of maybe bacteria when you're spraying germinating them. Um, that's what I do. I just add more beneficial bacteria and then just wish for the best. Yeah, the seed, the seed uh, treatment or the, well, the seed treatment has been around for a very long time, but that, that attention to testing seed and maintaining the purity, that's reasonably new um, yes. you know, with the past several years that it's really ramped up. And, and a lot of the seed companies are really doing a great job with that. Yes. yes. So, yeah. So as it relates to disease issues, uh, um, people always ask, well, you know, I have to keep out, I, I can't get Pythium into my growing system. Well, Pythium is everywhere and it will be in your growing system regardless. So the only real um, challenge that you have is, is plants or, or root systems that are weakened 
where it creates the opportunity. So growing them, of course, at, at maximum uh, productivity, at maximum quality with the right environment, the right nutrition, critically important to growing high quality, healthy plants that are much more disease resistant. And as Nick had said, uh, the most seeds are not a problem. Now, there are occasionally issues. Um, we had, in fact, we were, our farm was, um, had the distinction of being the first farm in the United States to be diagnosed with um, fusarium wilt in sweet basil back in the early 1990s by Dr. Rob Wick at the, at the University of Ma Massachusetts. Um, and um, we did everything to manage our environment correctly, manage our nutrition, and yet we kept having problems in basil with the fusarium wilt, which is a, a fungal pathogen that gets into the root systems. Was and that in the genetics? Was that in the genetics then? And, well, that's what we found out. So we, we were looking at our systems, we were looking at our process, and um, what happens is it, is it gets in, the fungus gets into the vascular tissue of the plant and it plugs it up. So basically the plants start becoming nutritionally deficient and then they start wilting because they just cannot get water and nutrients into the leaf tissues. And we were very frustrated with it. And we finally found out after a lot of testing is that the seed sources were contaminated. And so then we, we went into, we looked at, we tried, um, we trialed a number of different seed treatments. We did hydrogen peroxide, hydrogen dioxide. We also used chlorine bleach. We actually got the most effective results using hot water treatment, 120 to 125 degrees Fahrenheit for 10 minutes. And that killed not only the pathogens on the outside of the seed coat, which is where most, if you have infected seed, usually that's where it is. But they actually found infection inside the endosperm of the seed. So this was a genetic problem. This was fusarium wilt had been in the seed fields for a long time. And it was in the plant. We've been having this problem with arugula for years now, too, as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and arugula is very prone to bacterial spec, which, again, can be seed borne. Um, so we're, we're, we're looking at the hot water treatment is not always the right uh, way, but we've had really good luck with it because you need to heat the seed enough to kill the pathogens or severely limit the pathogens without harming the seed or harming the germination rate of the seed. And that's the balance. So you can't just throw in hot water and hope for the best. Um, we did a lot of trials and um, a lot of folks at the University of Massachusetts did a great job developing that protocol. How how long should you treat it and at what temperature? So um, yeah, so, so using chlorine bleach has been used forever um, in the cut flower industry and in the seed industry. So certainly um, it's a, those are tools and options available, but, but yeah, as Nick has and said, there's also some stuff that I use called hygrozyme. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's absolutely uh, spectacular, Joe. It's, it's a media cleaner. It's actually uh, supposed to clean the medium and break down the roots and break down everything faster uh, to keep things clean. Um, I've been using it in the, in, inside the grow room. And when I started using this, I really don't worry when it comes to germination, when I use it. Beautiful. It's all about the results. Correct. So anyway, hopefully you got um, some good stuff out of that where we talked a little bit about soil and hydroponics and what might make the most sense for you. So hopefully you'll be able to, to take some of that information and, and apply it to your own personal situation. But of course, we always invite uh, you to send us more questions, comments. Um, we've got a couple really cool guests coming up in the next few weeks. We've got some higher level discussions talking about greenhouse structures, environmental management, nutritional management. And we're also going to talk a little bit more about produce marketing and how to get your products into the hands of the consumer. So we've got a lot of cool stuff coming up. We look forward to having more conversations with you. So we appreciate your time today. And uh, we hope that you have a really good day and we'll talk to you again very soon.